Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. From Vermont Public, this is Brave Little State. I'm Josh Crane. And I'm Sabine Pooks. Off the highway, on a suburban street in Essex Junction, there's a sunroom full of fig and citrus trees. So the whole idea here is to create Palestine in Vermont. This is an orange tree, and the blossoms just passed. When they first open, the smell goes all over the house. It's just amazing. And this is a lemon tree. Musa Ishak grew up around trees like these in Abud, in the West Bank. This room is one of his ways of feeling more at home in Vermont. So Chris built this room for me to be quiet during winter and not complain. (laughs) Chris is Musa's wife. They met when they were students in Cairo, Egypt, studying at the American University. And they moved to Vermont nearly a half century ago, when Musa got a job with IBM. Chris was raised in Iowa. The old black-and-white family photos and Norwegian-style Christmas decorations are traces of her heritage. Yeah, Chris's rule is the seating area doesn't change, so I have to really work hard on stuffing plants. <laughs> yeah, my rule is there has to be room for people, not just otherwise, plants. Otherwise, you would fill it with plants. They need room for people because Musa and Chris love people. They love their granddaughters, a pair of twin girls, who they get to babysit every week. Musa's parents used to live with them, too. Some of the stone terraces his dad built are still in the backyard. And Musa and Chris love hosting friends from abroad. Last summer, a friend from Bethlehem stopped by for a night while he was dropping his daughters off at Circus Smirkus, the international youth circus based in the Northeast Kingdom. And we had the whole sister city group here, you know, for dinner with them and... So it was, really it was nice, yeah. The group Moose is referring to consists of 10 or so Vermonters who meet every month to talk about ways to connect with Burlington's sister cities. In sister cities, according to nonprofit Sister Cities International, are formal relationships between communities in the United States and communities in other countries. Those relationships are encouraged through what's known as citizen diplomacy, more later on what that looks like, and Burlington has a few different official sister cities, including the relationships Musa helped establish three decades ago with Bethlehem in the West Bank and Arad in Israel. It's his and Chris's love of people and belief in people that's been the backbone of the program for all those years. When people don't know each other and they have different ideas, whatever ideas, when they break bread and they interact with each other, they find out that they are the same. Through intifadas, the increasingly brutal Israeli occupation of the West Bank, the Hamas attack on Israel last October, and now months and months of bombing in Gaza. Through all that, the Sister City Program's North Star has been people-to-people relationships. The idea that we can get so much closer to a peaceful and just world, or at least become more prepared for that world when we talk to each other, rather than letting governments and militaries do all the talking. Talking to people, listening deeply, 
building empathy and understanding, this all sounds pretty familiar. These are some of the core ideas behind what we do on the show, and they take us to all corners of the state. But what about everything going on beyond Vermont's borders? What relationship do Vermonters have with the rest of the world? That's what one listener has been thinking about a lot. I have many years living in next door in Jordan. Peg Clement of Burlington. I have worked in Ramallah in the West Bank. I have visited Bethlehem as a tourist and traveled around and gotten medical work done in Israel when I was living in Jordan on the East Bank. Peg is 70. She's semi-retired now, but spent more than 40 years working in international aid and development, from the Peace Corps to serving as a democracy advisor in other countries to helping monitor foreign elections. She's lived all over the world and has picked up a ton of languages through her globe-hopping career. French, Arabic, Portuguese, Spanish, a little Italian and German. I don't know. I love languages. And I love messing around. I think it's a big sign of respect when Americans can talk to people in their own language. She's been living in Burlington for the past decade or so. But she still has connections all over the world. And she was following along when Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th the bloodiest day in Israeli history. And she also followed as Israeli forces killed tens of thousands of Palestinian civilians in the Gaza Strip, including at least 10,000 children at the time we're releasing this episode. While Peg was tracking these unfathomable losses, a Vermont man shot two Palestinian Americans and one Palestinian in Burlington, where Peg lives. All three are college students. Two of the students were wounded. The third, Hishem Awatani, is now paralyzed from the chest down. Uh, at this point, I get a little emotional because uh, the, the lad who, who got the worst injury, Hishem, uh, his mother is a colleague of mine and a friend. When I was living in Jordan, she took me under her wing and I met her boy, I guess, at that age. He was very young at that point. But So this, this latest event just uh, is very hard to watch as it unfolds and to see Elizabeth on the media, CNN, and everywhere. It was around this time that Peg found an old reference in a local paper to Burlington's, quote, sister cities, and how two of those sisters are Bethlehem and Arad. And I said, geez, we've got two sisters over there. Is there anything we can do? We Americans, we always want to know what we can do. So she submitted this question to our show. Burlington's sister cities are Bethlehem and Arad, one in Palestine, one in Israel. Do other Vermont cities besides Burlington have such programs? What relationships are even possible these days for sister cities? The answer to the first part of Peg's question is straightforward. Yeah, there are a bunch of Vermont towns and cities with sister cities. Rutland has a sister in Hanamaki, Japan, with student exchanges planned for this year. Randolph has a sister city in Mirhorod, Ukraine, and has been sending money and materials as Russia's war on Ukraine continues. Hartford has a sister in Sinan, France. Colchester has one in Colchester, England. Burlington also has other sister cities, 
in Puerto Cabezas, Nicaragua, Yaroslavl, Russia, Enfleur, France, Nishinomiya, Japan, and don't forget Burlington, Canada. And the city has a sister in the U.S., in Moss Point, Mississippi. That relationship was formed to help a community that was impacted heavily by Hurricane Katrina. Even Lake Champlain has sister lakes overseas in Macedonia and Indonesia. But answering the second part of Peg's curiosity about what relationships are possible these days with two of Burlington's sisters, Arad and Bethlehem, that's more complicated. In part, it's because it's something the Sister City Committee itself is grappling with. Sister City relationships are theoretically apolitical. Remember, these agreements are meant to engage citizens and not governments. But there's also a history of sister cities between countries with pretty tense or even overtly hostile relationships. Take the U.S. and Russia, Nicaragua, and Japan. In some ways, that's the whole idea, to show that it's possible to build relationships in spite of what our country's governments are doing. But the line is a little blurry. And for Burlington, Bethlehem, and Arad, it's impossible to fully separate the sister city relationship from the broader political context in which it exists right now. Right now, there's a brutal war playing out. There's also a very long history of conflict, occupation, and oppression that predated this war. If you want to learn more about this history or find the latest updates about what's happening overseas, we've included some resources in the show notes. What we're going to do today is to lean into what we do best, follow the curiosity of our winning question asker, and our own. Like how the roots of Vermont's sister city relationships date back to a former Burlington mayor. What the sister city program is to me is a human way to say to the people in Nicaragua, we want to work with you cooperatively. And we turn our focus overseas to better understand the impact of our sister city relationships. Talking about peace without justice is void. We also explore the effects of the program closer to home. I was really excited to be asked um, to participate and to learn that Americans you know, could be involved in that way. This one, by the way, is a full team effort. Throughout the episode, you'll hear me, as well as Brave Little States, Sabine Pooks and Burgess Brown. We're a proud member of the NPR Network. Welcome. 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 Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. I think if the sister city relationship means anything, and it means a great deal to me, and I know it means a great deal to you, this, of course, is former Burlington Mayor Bernie Sanders, speaking in Burlington's first official sister city in Puerto Cabezas, Nicaragua, almost 40 years ago. It means that we believe that human beings on a face-to-face -face level are able to communicate with each other, are able to work out problems based on mutual respect, 
and that as Americans, we want our nation to be bold and brave, but not with guns and not with machine guns and not with napalm. Sister cities as a concept long predate Bernie Sanders' time in office. But in Burlington, it was the progressive mayor who brought the idea to the fore. He rejected his country's foreign policy and saw that policy as a local issue. After all, it was his constituents' money that was funding these foreign wars, and he saw sister cities as a window into the conversation. That's what brought him to Puerto Cabezas, Nicaragua, in 1985. At the time, the Reagan administration was trying to unseat Nicaragua's left-wing Sandinista government. And we are not prepared to accept this nation dominating poor nations and weak nations who are trying to do decent things for their people. His message to the city was that the federal government did not speak for the people of Burlington. What the Sister City program is to me is a human way to say to the people in Nicaragua, we respect you as human beings and we want to work with you cooperatively to build a decent world. Puerto Cabezas was Burlington's first sister city, though there are also references to an earlier relationship with Nagasaki, Japan, in Sanders' old letters. From the start, these relationships were somewhat subversive. Against the backdrop of the Contra War, Burlington sent humanitarian aid to Puerto Cabezas. The cities exchanged Little League teams, and Burlington donated 20 tons of materials, including medical supplies, which it shipped down by a barge in the midst of the U.S.'s trade embargo on Nicaragua. And then in the late 80s, Burlington added a second sister city in Yaroslavl, Russia, or as it was at the time, the Soviet Union. Reagan was telling us that, that the Soviet Union is the evil empire. Peter Clavel was in Sanders' office at the time. And we said, well, there's certainly some issues and uh, there certainly are some serious uh, challenges that the people of the Soviet Union face. But let us better understand what those are by getting to know these people on on a one-on-one basis. And so, in the midst of the Cold War, Burlington and Yaroslavl organized exchanges, children's librarians, jazz musicians, and youth orchestras. Also, sports teams. There was an entire hockey team from Yaroslavl, a professional hockey team that visited Vermont and taught our college teams uh, a few lessons about uh, hockey. They They were a superb team. Bernie Sanders' term in office ended in 1989, and Peter Clavel himself became mayor. And he carried with him the ethos of what he calls municipal foreign policy. You know, we felt that uh, things that were going on around the world were affecting the lives of the people in the city of Burlington. One of those people was Musa Ishak, the Palestinian man with the grove of trees in Essex Junction, and his wife, Chris. This is our place. This is where our home is. Vermonters by choice. Long before Musa had ever heard of Vermont, he was growing up in Aboud, in the West Bank. At the time, it was under the control of neighboring Jordan. Musa's family later moved to Amman, Jordan's capital. But they'd go back to Aboud every summer. And it was, to me, space, uh, greenery, mountains, springs. So it really was my safe uh, and beautiful place to go to. Our team spoke with Musa last month. Here's Josh. And do you still have friends or family in Amman or Aboud? Yes, I do. A lot of family and uh, friends in both places. In Aboud, um, it's, it's a tougher situation. You know, it's under occupation, so it's 
1967, when Musa was 16, Israel captured the West Bank. Have you been able to go back at all or, or not really? As a Palestinian, it would be very difficult to go back. So uh, we, we go back as Americans and we are allowed only three months. But you cannot stay for good. You cannot live there. There is no benign occupation. Occupations restrict your movement, restrict your rights. Once Musa was in Vermont, he wanted his neighbors to learn about what it was like back home. He says there was a lot of excitement at the time about sister cities and citizen diplomacy. So along with a group of friends, Musa and Chris decided to adopt a Palestinian sister city. There were plenty of U.S. cities with sisters in Israel at the time, but as far as they could tell, a Palestinian sister would be a first. So in 1990, they set out to find one and landed on Bethlehem, a Palestinian city of about 28,000 people, roughly 60 miles away from Abud in the West Bank. We chose Bethlehem because it's about the same size as Burlington. It's a college town. It is an artistic town, you know, lots of artistry. The group brought their idea to the Burlington City Council. There was a lot of pushback. Some worried that adopting the proposal would amount to picking a side in the conflict or that it was too political. An article in the Burlington Free Press says there was a debate over, quote, whether a bond with a Palestinian city would be an affront to Burlington Jews. Ultimately, they landed on this. In addition to adopting Bethlehem as a sister city, they'd also adopt a sister city in Israel, a place called Arad. Someone in Burlington had a connection there. Plus, Arad is about the same size as Burlington and Bethlehem. It sits on the edge of the Negev Desert. You know, it's compromise. You know, I believe in compromise. The compromise looked like a three-pronged or tripartite relationship. Burlington became sister cities with Bethlehem and with Arad. The idea was that one day Bethlehem and Arad would sign an agreement with each other, too. So we were not only the first sister city in the country with a Palestinian sister city, but also we were the first tripartite sister city in the country, you know, with three, three cities. In 1992, the Burlington City Council passed a resolution approving the agreement. And a few years after that, mayors and representatives from all three cities met in Burlington to shake hands and make it official. Musa says the goal has always been to bring people from all three places together so they can learn from and grow to understand each other. And he's had to work toward that goal with limited resources. Each of Burlington's programs gets just $2,000 a year from the city. Over the years, that funding and the money the committee has raised has gone toward hosting Israeli and Palestinian speakers and providing forums and films to spark discussion about the conflict. The Sister City Committee has sponsored an after-school program in Arad and sent money to hospitals in the West Bank. A lot of efforts have focused on propping up students in Bethlehem including scholarships for women and a program that brought students to Burlington for hotel management training. And for a few years, they also sponsored students to attend a summer camp that brought people together from all three cities. Josh Crane spoke to one such student. I was really excited. This is Talia Manning. She grew up in Essex, Vermont, and she remembers the moment she was invited to attend a summer camp called Seeds of Peace. I was really excited to be asked um, to participate and to learn that Americans, you know, could be involved in that way. Seeds of Peace is an international nonprofit based in the United States. 
It was founded around bringing American kids together with kids from the Middle East at summer camp so they could better understand the Israel-Palestine conflict and each other. It was established in the 90s, around the same time as the Burlington-Bethlehem-Arad sister city relationship. And both programs share a similar ethos, emphasizing person-to-person connection and trying to move beyond the geographical and political boundaries that separate people. That's why in the late 90s, Musa Ishak and other leaders of the Sister City program wanted to sponsor a Vermonter to attend camp at Seeds of Peace. Talia, then age 15, was an obvious fit. She's Jewish, and her family has roots in the Middle East. It started with her great-grandfather, who was living in Germany in the 1930s. And um, the night that Hitler was elected, he said, this is not going to be good. We need to leave. And so they left Germany that night. After leaving Germany, Talia's great-grandfather moved to Jerusalem. This was the 1930s, before Israel was created and when the city was still under British mandate. Even so, Talia says she's always felt a connection to Israel and what it represents for the Jewish people. And so for my family, Israel was uh, the safe place that he was able to go and that he found refuge and was able to grow up. Talia learned about Seeds of Peace in social studies class in middle school. And the idea of meeting kids from the Middle East at summer camp, it was exciting. So her rabbi recommended her for the program. And in 1999, she packed her bags for a special session of Seeds of Peace highlighting sister city relationships. Talia met kids from Burlington's sister cities in Bethlehem and Arad specifically, like Hilly Hurt. Usually Seeds of Peace didn't come to the periphery. It would take people from uh, Jerusalem to Aviv, Haifa, you know, main cities. Hilly grew up in Arad. She says it was a tight-knit progressive community when she was growing up. Lots of artists, like Bethlehem and Burlington. And she says it was not a common location for Seeds of Peace to find campers. It was beautiful, with views of the Dead Sea and nice sunsets, but also kind of out of the way, and very much the desert. And at night, porcupines, like the huge ones, just cross your, you know, kind of like your garden, and it's full of scorpions that bite you in the tush. While attending Seeds of Peace, Hilly met Talia. She was... Such an extrovert. You see her and you definitely automatically want to be her friend. Um, This is a picture of Hilly. Hilly played um, piano. Well, here she is in black and white with, (laughs) (laughs) with the song that she wrote. Seeds of Peace had all the normal summer camp activities. Sing alongs, campfires, talent shows. And there was also programming more specific to the Seeds of Peace model. Cultural shows, where campers got to present something important to their heritage. Which, for Talia... This is me. I dressed up in overalls and cow flannels to represent Vermont. Talia brought a few photo albums to our interview. And she's pointing to a photo of herself on a stage in full Vermont regalia, holding a sign. The sign says... Vermont, the Green Mountain State, and home of Ben and Jerry. In addition to these cultural displays, campers also participated in two hours of coexistence sessions each day. 
During this time, they would gather in small groups to discuss the state of the conflict, sharing their experiences and their family histories. Talia says it worked, and that the difference in campers' comfort level at the beginning versus the end of the summer was palpable. On the first day, people would say they were afraid to, to go to sleep because they were worried that the enemy was sleeping right in the bed next to them and what would they do to them that day. Mm. By the end, we, you know, we had the, the strength and bond of anyone who has attended summer camp and just you know, falls in love with their bunkmates and their, their friends there. Hilly Hurt from Arad remembers her time at camp like this. For the first week, I probably cried that I wanted home. And then by the second week, I was, all I was thinking was crying that I didn't want to go home. The older you get, the more of the complexities you understand. But the simple truth of where people who want to get along stays as the base value of any complexity that comes along. Like, I think everything that I believe today, all my understandings, the values are due to the fact that as a child, a 12-year-old kid, I was like, hey, I have a crush on this Jordanian Arab named Iyad, and he's gorgeous and sweet and a person, and forever, every Jordanian will be somebody who wants peace for me. One of the people Talia remembers most from her camp experience was a boy named Asil Asle. We referred to him as the boy with the thousand watt smile because he was always beaming. He just had a joy and a character. And in this photo here, he's leading like one of the chants. Talia's pointing to a seal in full camp mode, mouth open, leading some sort of song as his fellow campers swarm around him. They stayed in touch even after Talia returned to Vermont and a seal returned to Israel. And he actually was my first instant message on AOL. It was just so cool to be able to talk with him, you know, across the world just spontaneously like that. They talked a lot about identity. Talia, a Jewish-American, a seal, an Arab-Israeli, ethnically Palestinian, but a citizen of Israel. And he talked a lot about how he felt like he didn't fit anywhere because he was a proud Palestinian. Um, He also felt a strong connection to Israel, which was his home. Around this time, Talia also started participating more actively in the Burlington, Bethlehem, and Arad Sister City program. She helped Musa and other program leaders make a push for Bethlehem and Arad to formalize a sister city pact with each other. To that point, both cities only had direct agreements with Burlington. This is the speech that As I we talk, she points to a copy of a speech she made in 1999 in Burlington. It's a joint statement from Talia, a camper from Bethlehem, and Hilly, the camper from Arad. We hope that the direct contact between the mayors and eventually the citizens of our sister cities, Bethlehem, Arad, and Burlington, will have the same wonderful results that we experienced at camp. The direct agreement between Bethlehem and Arad never came to pass. As best anyone can remember, politics got in the way. But Talia remained involved and attended meetings for the Sister City program. I think we had monthly meetings at the Burlington Police Station. In the backdrop of those conversations, as well as the conversations Talia and Asil were having over AOL Instant Messenger, tensions in the Middle East were starting to rise again. The year 2000 marked the beginning of the Second Intifada, or Palestinian Uprising. 
And then she got a call from a Seeds of Peace friend who lived in that area. And um, he just, you know, he just said, Asil is dead. Asil was killed by Israeli police. When he was killed, he was wearing his Seeds of Peace t-shirt. And the, um, the reporting is that he was there observing the protest in his town and that he was chased and beaten and shot at point-blank range in the neck by the Israeli police who were there responding to the protest. Asil was one of 13 Arab citizens of Israel killed at that protest. How did you react? Um, I think I was in shock for a little while. Um, I remember just kind of getting off the phone. I, I was up in my room. I went downstairs and I told my mom and my mom started crying. And I remember that sort of it scared me because she doesn't normally cry. She's not a crier. I think for a while I questioned a lot of my love of Israel and my my support of Israel because it had been Israeli police officers who brutally killed my friend. And the death of a seal was a catalyst for me to becoming more of an activist and more outspoken. Talia says that camp alumni rallied together in the years after Asil's death. They even protested Israel's Ministry of Justice after it announced that none of the police officers involved in the fatal shootings of Asil or the 12 other Palestinian citizens of Israel would face criminal indictment. Talia's been holding on to these experiences since October 7th and the beginning of the latest Israel-Hamas war. Though she says the bonds of summer camp and their shared experiences haven't been enough recently to hold the Seeds of Peace community together. And in in this latest outbreak, that has also been really hard to watch. I think everyone is being pushed to take a side. And I feel like you are either expected to stand with Israel or to free Palestine. And I have trouble with that limited view. She says that even some of the group chats and other lines of communication with her fellow Seeds of Peace alumni have felt challenging and unproductive. Some have been put on hiatus entirely. So, in thinking about our guiding question with this episode, what relationships are possible right now? Well, Talia and Hilly attended Seeds of Peace in the 90s. It was a time of optimism and momentum for building consensus and finding peace in the Middle East. That's certainly something Hilly felt coming out of camp. I remember coming out and saying, this is going to be my future career. Like, this is what I'm going to do. I am going to be in the peace-making business forever. Hilly hasn't lived in Arad or been involved with Seeds of Peace for a long time. She's still grateful for the role camp played in her life for the three summers she attended. But these days, she says it's much harder to be optimistic. I'd say the situation today is the opposite. On all sides, you talk to Jordanians and uh, you talk to Egyptians and to Palestinians. There is a, what's the word for kituv in English? A polarization. And so do those same programs that were created in this moment that felt completely different, do they still seem useful to you now? Um... 
that's kind of like asking Xerox if their camera is still relevant in the digital age. The question, the answer is yes, but but it, it it's really contingent on how innovative you are. She says she needed more support from Seeds of Peace in the years after she was a camper, like when she started her mandatory military service. When it comes to um, con- continuing the connection with Palestinians and the Arab world, when I'm a grown up with what happens when we're at war, when what happens when there is conflict. And I felt that when things got tough, they weren't there enough for me. Talia goes back to Asil and one of his favorite passages in times like these. It's from the 13th century poet Rumi, and it goes like this. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. And so a seal always said, I'll meet you there in that field. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Brave Little State. We're answering a question from Peg Clement about what relationship is possible these days between Burlington and two of its sister cities, Bethlehem and Arad. I'm here now with Brave Little State associate producer Burgess Brown. Hey, Burgess. Hey, Josh. So you've been focused on the relationship between Burlington and Bethlehem, which currently seems to be the more active side of this tripartite sister city relationship. Yeah, that's right. And I want to start by showing you this video. All right, so I'm seeing some very snazzy old school public access TV graphics. Uh, And now I'm seeing some people at a table, looks like a panel. And on a screen behind them, there's footage of kids dancing, I think. And despite everything, despite this violence forced on us almost daily, despite the ugliness of all of this, we dare to sing and dance. And these children dare to go to a stage and express themselves beautifully. The public access graphics probably gave it away, but this footage is from 2004. And the person that you're hearing speak is Abdel Fattah Abusror. He's narrating over a video of Palestinian children performing what's essentially an interpretive dance. It's part of an event in Burlington that the Sister Cities program sponsored called Beautiful Resistance, a fundraiser for children's theater in Bethlehem. This is all the history. People planting seeds, working the ground, and harvesting. So tell me a little bit more about this children's theater program in the West Bank. Yeah, so it's one of the programs of a community center that Abdel Fattah started called Al-Rawad, which means Pioneers for Life. And it's based out of the Ida refugee camp, which is just about a mile from Bethlehem. These are the children behind the tank who just entered the camp. And as you see, Ida camp is just to the south of Jerusalem, north of Bethlehem. And, and what is the Ida camp? 
The Ida refugee camp is actually where Abdel Fattah was born, and it's this densely populated camp that's home to more than 7,000 Palestinian refugees. It's near the main Israeli checkpoint between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And Abdel Fattah says that the constant military occupation in the camp has led to regular clashes between Ida residents, often children, and Israeli soldiers. And this is where the motivation for his theater program comes from. But what we try to do is to provide them with this peaceful and nonviolent alternative because we need this generation to build the Palestine of tomorrow so they can throw stones on stage, they can die on stage, but they can resuscitate and live again on stage. Burgess, I know you were able to reach Abdel Fattah in the West Bank earlier this month. Yep, he spoke to me from his office in the Ida refugee camp, which is about 5,500 miles from where I was calling him in Burlington. Hi, Abdel Fattah. It's nice to meet you. Hi, Burgess. Nice meeting you as well. How are you doing? Alhamdulillah. Could be better, as you know. Abdel Fattah says that life in Bethlehem has been even more difficult than usual since the start of the latest conflict. Bethlehem is shut down. So a lot of unemployment, a lot of lack of income for a lot of families, for a lot of businesses, and so on. So there is a crisis, humanitarian crisis, let alone what is happening in Gaza with this massive destruction. And In spite of the destruction, he says the work of Al-Ruad continues. But the children are the actors, the children are on stage, the children who want to say what they want to say in the most beautiful, creative way and shout as loud as they want. And hopefully this would be a way to build peace within themselves, to hopefully be peace builders in their community and in the world. This peace building is done in part through international theater tours, like the ones in 2005 and 2009 that brought the troupe to Burlington. Abdel Fattah says these trips are a way for the kids to share the history of the West Bank and their own personal histories with the world. And then it's also an opportunity for the kids to see what life is like outside the refugee camp. I don't pretend that this is the magical wand which will resolve all the horrible things in the world, but it is a way that people can identify with, that put people on equal grounds. As I was talking to Abdel Fattah, I kept thinking about something that Peg Clement, today's winning question asker, told us. It was about feeling powerless in times of crisis. We can't just waltz in and say, how can we help? You know, do you need toys for children? You know, we just can't do that. We have to listen. We have to listen uh, deeply to anything they would like to tell us. I shared Peg's thoughts with Abdel Fattah, and he's in agreement. Listening is a critical first step. This is an important aspect of how you support people with respect and dignity and according to their needs. We are not just taking whatever is given to us. If it helps, if it is in our priorities and needs needed for our services, it is most welcome. According to Abdel Fattah, providing this kind of support is a strength of the Sister Cities program. But he's quick to add that words, dialogue, and personal connections can only take us so far. If it is just to build this aspect on personal level without going beyond to make a a, a social or political impact, then uh, it would not be that productive in that sense. It's like these relations between 
like seeds of peace or whatever projects that try to bring Palestinian and Israeli together. Let's have fun, dance, sweep on the shoulders of each other, eat together, and then we everybody goes back to his corner of the wall and nothing changes. I'm not interested in public relations, really. This is a critique that's been leveled against Seeds of Peace and the Sister Cities program since the days that Bernie Sanders was mayor of Burlington. In a 1986 article for Against the Current, Sanders conceded that one of the fundraising efforts for Puerto Cabezas in Nicaragua was, quote, more symbolic than anything. There is good intentions, but uh, the world would not change by good intentions simply. It needs good actions. And the first of these good actions is trying to, to create these personal connections, these personal stories, but then if it is, does not lead to uh, uh, change in, in the conditions of people, then it's just wasting time, uh, a lot of times. Abdel Fattah says that while there is an urgent need for humanitarian aid right now, what's really needed is to address the political conditions that have created the current crisis. You are just continuing to react to catastrophes without really resolving the catastrophes or the causes of catastrophes and so on. Uh, Palestine do not need reactions. We need actions to change (laughs) the tragedy that is happening and to stop it. As a Muslim, you know, our Prophet Muhammad said, support your brother, whether he is oppressed or oppressor. So his companions were puzzled with this. We do understand how to support an oppressed, but how can you support an oppressor? He said by preventing him from doing the oppression. Uh, You cannot make peace with oppression, occupation, injustice. People cannot coexist with oppressors and occupation as long as the oppression and occupation continue. Talking about peace without justice is void. And the sun comes out right behind you and moves all day. So that's uh, east, southeast. I'm back in Musa Ishak's sunroom. Abdel Fattah was here visiting last summer. Now some Christmas ornaments hang on the branches of a lime tree. We only put up decorations for the kids, for our granddaughters. Mm. We were tempted not not to decorate, but... We were not in the mood to celebrate. Um, It was just too much death and destruction. You know, this occupation has gone on 56 years now, you know, on the West Bank and Gaza. Mm. And it just keeps getting worse. To this day, amid all the death and destruction in Gaza this fall and winter, the Sister Cities group has refrained from engaging in what Chris calls political advocacy— But when the people in our sister cities are so impacted by the politics, what does being apolitical even mean? I put that question to Musa. I mean, we say it's not political, but everything you do with with Palestine or Israel is political. One example, shortly after two Palestinian-American students and one Palestinian student were shot in Burlington last November, Musa and Chris wanted their sister city committee to issue a statement. To express our sympathy towards the families and to the students, and also ask for a ceasefire. The ceasefire was an issue. Hmm. And uh, so we didn't... We decided that we needed consensus, and we didn't have consensus, so we didn't issue the statement. Hmm. Which is sad. 
What was it like to be in a meeting and see the people on the committee disagree on this thing that sounds like the two of you see as very fundamental to, to a blasting piece? Was it disappointing? Yeah. We were disappointed that we could not issue a statement. You know, all we are asking for is ceasefire to stop killing civilians. That one was a little surprising. We were, we were surprised. Yeah. Okay. It, it was sad, but we don't give up. Mm. Did it change the way you think about this group at all, or you think about no. the work you do? No. Mm. Because when we started, it was much more contentious. <laughs> much more difficult. Much more difficult. One thing that has gotten more difficult. Burlington has lost touch with Arad, its sister city in Israel. Musa and Chris say that's because the government there has gotten much more conservative. Hilly Hurt, the camper from Arad, suspects it could also be because of a change in priorities or resources. The committee and even the Burlington mayor's office have tried reaching out to no avail. It's not the only relationship that's faltered in recent years. Burlington suspended its official ties with the city of Yaroslavl, its sister in Russia, after President Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. In a letter, members of that sister city's committee said the suspension was counterproductive. Quote, cutting off people-to-people relationships cuts off dialogue or a way forward, the committee wrote. So again, to go back to that second part of Peg's question, what sort of relationship is possible these days? Musa comes back to the work that the committee has been doing for the last 30 years, supporting institutions in Bethlehem and continuing people-to-people exchanges when it's safe to do so. It sounds like you sort of see it as, like, on a large scale, education and people-to-people interaction and, you know, people learning and changing their minds and understanding. Eventually, that could change the tide. Yes. But that sounds like a slow, a slow process. Yeah, it is. It is. has been 30 years, and if we, if we had any illusions of fast uh, producing goodness, we would have been disappointed a long time ago. Yeah. Because the situation is actually getting worse. The committee meets again early next month. You know, the one thing to remember is we are really good friends, you know, the, everybody on the committee. Mm. And uh, so we will discuss probably the statement and move, move beyond it. The lack of a statement. Or the lack of statement. <laughs> and move beyond it. You know, we have other projects that we are working on. And Arad, we keep trying. You know, hopefully we'll re-establish uh, contact. It's still officially we are sister city. If it was easy, we would not have started it. But uh, we just have to keep working on creating progress. Thanks for listening to the show. And thanks to Peg Clement of Burlington for the great question. The Burlington Bethlehem Arad Sister City Committee holds public meetings on the first Monday of every month in Burlington's Miller Center. We've included links in the show notes with more information about this, as well as other resources if you want to learn more about the history of Israel, Palestine, and the conflict in the Middle East. To find photos from our reporting and a full transcript of the episode, head to bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you should sign up for our newsletter so you can stay up to date on everything happening in the Brave Little State universe. 
We're also on Instagram and Reddit at BraveStateVT. This episode was reported and produced by Sabine Pooks, Burgess Brown, and me, Josh Crane. Angela Evansy is our executive producer. Ty Gibbons composed our theme music, other music by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Sophie Stevens, Sandy Baird, Prudence Doherty, Chris Burns, Rob Bliss, Emery Mathias, Jonas Bivak, Jim Rader, and the CCTV Center for Media and Democracy. We have support from our station's sustaining members. If you liked what you heard today, head to bravelittlestate.org slash donate, or just tell your friends to listen. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public and a proud member of the NPR Network. Thanks for listening. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.